Good morning. John 3.16. It is the most famous verse in the Bible. As that bumper points out, we see that reference to John 3.16 everywhere, don't we? We see people holding it up on signs at games. We see athletes write it on their shoes. My wife and I used to get Chinese takeout from a place that wrote John 3.16 on the bottom of every takeout container. John 3.16 is everywhere. But when people see that reference, do they know what that verse says? And maybe more importantly, do people know what that verse means? Why is John 3.16, of all of the verses in the Bible, why is John 3.16 the most famous verse in the Bible? I believe it is because it is a wonderful, short, one-verse outline of God's plan of salvation. And over the course of the next four weeks, we are going to be looking at this single verse. That's right. Over the course of the next four weeks, we are going to be looking at the single verse, John 3.16, in order to talk about this gospel message that God has given to us. Because we want to fully understand it, and we also want to be able to communicate about Jesus to everybody we come in contact with. And John 3.16 is a wonderful way to do that. The four parts of the gospel message that we see in John 3.16 are the peril listed, which is perishing, the plan, which is God's love, the pathway, which is belief in Jesus, and the prize, that is eternal life. And so over the course of the next four weeks, we're going to be dealing with these four parts of the good news that are talked about in John 3.16, one at a time. And today is going to be the most challenging message because today we're going to be talking about the peril talked about in the verse, which is perishing. It is a warning to us. Warnings are important in life, aren't they? If I go to drink something from under the kitchen sink, and as I go to drink it, I see the Mr. Yuck label on it that identifies it as poison, it's probably a good idea for me to heed that warning and not drink that, right? It's probably a good idea for me to not drink things from under the sink as a general rule. Can we all agree on that? If I'm driving along and I'm about to make a left-hand turn and I'm pulling out onto a one-way street against traffic, it's a good idea for me to heed the warning, don't make a left-hand turn. I'm going to make a mess of things, aren't I? If you're asleep at night and you get that warning from your fire alarm because there's a fire in your house, it's a good idea to heed that warning. Don't just roll over and go, oh, I'm so tired. Right? You want to heed that warning because there is a fire in your house. And John 3.16 gives us the most important warning that there is in all of life. And that warning is that there is a danger of perishing. What does it mean that people might perish? Does it mean that we'll grow old and pick up more and more aches and pains and illnesses as we go along in life? Well, that does happen, doesn't it? There are a few people out there that would say, amen, there are more aches and pains with each passing year. But that's not what John 3.16 is talking about. Jesus doesn't save us from aches and pains, does he? Believer, unbeliever, it doesn't matter. We all get increased aches and pains and illness as we go along in life. That is just a part of getting older. 
So then, if it's not the physical perishing that Jesus is saving me from, what is the perishing that is the warning in John 3.16? It is perishing that stands in contrast to eternal life. It is the eternal punishment that we get because of our sins. As a matter of fact, two verses after John 3.16, Jesus says that anyone who doesn't believe in him stands condemned by God. And just a few verses after that in John 3.36, Jesus says, if there is anyone who doesn't believe in me, the wrath of God remains on them. And so what is the perishing that's talked about in John 3.16? It's the eternal punishment that Jesus talks about in verses like... Matthew 25, 46, when he's talking about those who reject him and reject what is right, he says, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The perishing of John 3, 16 is eternal punishment for sin. Now let's pause here for a second to allow you to catch up and allow you to say, Oh, the message is about eternal perishing today. How exciting. When I woke up today, I just thought, oh, if I could only get a message about eternal perishing and eternal punishment, that would be so exciting. But truth isn't always fun, but it is true. And so we're going to deal with this hard truth today so that we can get to the good news, which is a whole lot of fun, over the course of the next three weeks. I also want to pause to say that it is distinctly possible that some of you have been a part of environments in which the topic of eternal punishing has been dealt with in such a way that it has been dealt with in an extreme that has not been helpful. One of two extremes that really isn't helpful. Now, one of those unhelpful extremes that maybe some of you have experienced is the kind of extreme where every week a preacher stands up and yells at you and screams at you about damnation and about hell. And every day there is this, every week there's an emotional blackmail that goes on as you're meant to try and feel guilty. And a preacher just screams at you week after week after week. When I did campus ministry at the University of Minnesota, every spring there were a couple of mall preachers that would come out. And they would come out in full suits to the U of M campus. And they would just stand there, they'd stand up on a box and just yell and scream at the students who would go by. Listing off all of the sins they knew these students were involved in, always in the King James and telling them about the hellfire and damnation that was to come, and just screaming and yelling at them. Not not super helpful. And the challenge is that there are people in this camp who appear to have more fun talking about people's sin and punishment than about Jesus' salvation. The other unhelpful extreme when it comes to dealing with the idea of eternal punishment is an extreme in which it just never gets spoken of at all. This may be true because we just haven't been a part of a church, and so it's never come up. But it may also be true because we have experience in a church that just decided to ignore God's teachings on this subject because they are not popular and they hurt attendance. One of the most 
famous pastors of the 1990s and 2000s who was a significant leader that shaped much of the seeker-sensitive church growth movement said this at his leadership conference, I never talk about eternal punishment in hell because these subjects make seekers uncomfortable. They do, don't they? They make everyone uncomfortable. But when you hear that, where does your mind go? You know, hopefully your mind immediately goes to Jesus' words. When he is speaking to thousands of people and says, you should fear, be in awe, revere the one who can throw body and soul into hell. Jesus handled this very different than this particular pastor did. And as I've said before, in those differences, who should we go with? Right? We go with Jesus. And so for 25 years, there has been a system of church in place. A system of church in which people say, hey, we meet because we want to be all about reaching lost people. But then have completely ignored a significant portion of the key message God gives us to reach lost people. The message about sin and punishment. Pulpit pounding and screaming on one hand, ignoring the teaching of scripture on the other. It isn't a surprise to you, is it, that Jesus is the one who points us to a healthy balance in this situation. As I have said before to you, a couple of scholars have gone through and said that 13% of Jesus' teaching in the Gospels is about sin and punishment and eternal punishment. He does not ignore it because it might offend the crowds. But at the same time, Jesus always teaches about eternal punishment with a call for people to repent because out of love, he does not want people in that place of punishment. Punishment is always talked about so that people will choose not punishment. So let's spend a few minutes this morning talking about what Jesus teaches us about eternal punishment. What does Jesus frame eternal punishment like when he speaks about it in the Gospels. And I want to look at three different images that Jesus uses about eternal punishment within the Gospels. The first of these images is the image of fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the what? The hell of fire. Throughout scripture, eternal punishment is seen as a place of fire. In Revelation 20, it is described as a lake of fire. And the idea of fire and burning regularly go along with eternal punishment within the scripture. What do these ideas of hell and burn, or I'm sorry, fire and burning teach us about eternal punishment? I think part of what Jesus is trying to teach us is eternal punishment is agony. Have you ever burned your hand on the stove or burned your hand on a glass fireplace? What was that like? To burn yourself is a unique kind of pain, isn't it? If you burn just one part of your body, it actually sends throbbing pains throughout all of your body. And when you burn yourself badly, does it just go away in a couple of minutes? No, it it continues to throb. As a matter of fact, it's my understanding that within burn units, when someone is burned over a significant part of the body, they will intentionally put them in a medically induced coma because of the sheer amount of pain that they are putting up with with those burns. And Jesus is trying to communicate to us through this imagery of fire and burning that it is painful. 
Now, this is very different than the way that the idea of eternal punishment in hell is dealt with in our society. Because in our society, hell and eternal punishment is seen primarily as a joke. When hell is pictured in some way in our society, Satan is dressed in red pajamas with a tail and a pitchfork. There's a bunch of people who are partying and hanging out, playing poker, and there's some nice flames around the outside that are keeping them warm while they have a good time because hell isn't taken particularly seriously in our society. A famous mogul, billionaire, uh, Ted Turner, who started Turner Broadcasting, CNN, etc., said this about eternal destinies. Heaven is going to be a mighty splendid place. And most of the people I know in life aren't going to be there. Most of us will go to hell. That's for sure where most of us journalists will go. But when we get there, we will have a chance to make things better because hell is supposed to be a mess. And heaven is perfect. Who wants to go to a place that's perfect? Boring, boring, boring. And then he laughed and laughed. The idea of eternal punishment has become a joke in the world. And part of what Jesus wants to communicate to us through these images of fire and burning is that hell is not a joke. Hell is a place of agony. Eternal punishment is agony. And the second image that Jesus uses shows us why it is a place of agony. Because the second image that Jesus uses is the image of darkness. Speaking of Jews who will reject him as their Messiah. He says in Matthew chapter 8 verse 12, But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What is Jesus communicating to us about eternal punishment when he uses this image of darkness? Well, as we think about the scriptures, God is what? God is light. And Jesus is the light of the world. And throughout the scriptures, God and all that is good is represented by light. And so to be cast out into the darkness is to be cast out of the presence of God and the presence of all that is good. 2 Thessalonians 1, 8 and 9 says, He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. For they will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. The great joy of heaven is the presence of Jesus. The great joy of heaven is being face to face with God. The great punishment of eternal punishment is total separation from God and total separation from all that is good. I I want us to remember that to be shut out of the presence of God is to be shut out of everything good that we experience in this life. James chapter 1 says, every good gift comes from where? Every good gift we experience in this life comes from God, right? It flows down from him. And so to be devoid of the presence of God is to be absent all of the good things that flow from God within this life. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 that the rain falls on the just and the unjust. What does he mean by that? What he means is God's blessings, like rain for the farmer that allows crops to grow, they they fall upon everyone in this life. God blesses everyone, believer and unbeliever, in certain ways in this life. 
And there is joy and there is love and there is relationship for everyone within this life, whether they trust in Jesus or not. There are certain blessings we can all enjoy. For example, you don't have to be a follower of Jesus Christ to have a deep and overwhelming sense of joy as a grandparent who holds their first grandchild for the first time. Everybody, believer and unbeliever, can have tremendous joy in that moment. You don't have to be a follower of Jesus to experience the joy that comes with eating a Popeye's chicken sandwich. Right? Everybody can experience that joy and pleasure. It's worth the drive to Bloomington. It's so good whether, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not. Everybody has an opportunity to experience the joy in this life of friendships and relationships with other people. But all of those good things flow from God. And when people are cast out completely of the presence of God, they're also cast out of the presence of every good thing that we experience in this life that flows from him. The gift of love comes from God, 1 John 4 says. And so eternal punishment will be a place with no love. But instead, it'll be a place of selfishness and sin. Joy flows out of God. Eternal punishment will be a place with no joy, but instead, only sorrow and pain. Peace flows out of God. Eternal punishment will be a place with no peace, but instead, only anxiety and frustration and worry. Heaven is a place of total community in the scripture. Hell, a place of total loneliness. Heaven is a place of complete beauty and worth. Hell, a place of monotony and ugliness. Jesus wants us to understand that to be cast out, to be in darkness is to be cast out of the presence of God and all that is good that is represented by light in the scripture. Now the third image that Jesus uses, he uses fire, he uses darkness, is the image of Gehenna. This is an actual place, Gehenna. what, What is Gehenna? Gehenna is a valley outside of Jerusalem. A valley that the people of Israel used 700 years before Jesus in order to sacrifice children to the false god Molech. And so a couple hundred years after that, when they were rebuilding Jerusalem, they said, this valley where we sacrificed our own children to this false god, it is cursed. And so what did they do with this valley, with Gehenna? They established it as the city's garbage dump. What do you do when you have thousands upon thousands of people all living in tight quarters in a city? You establish a garbage dump outside the city. And Gehenna was that place, that garbage dump, where all of the city's refuse went where all of the leftovers from the sacrificial system went, where even the poor who could not afford graves were thrown. And there was a constant fire burning the garbage, which, as you can imagine, would produce what? An awful stench. And this is the image that Jesus uses every time that he refers to hell within the Gospels. It is this word, Gehenna. So that he says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into Gehenna, where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into Gehenna. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye 
than with two eyes to be thrown into Gehenna, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Jesus takes this imagery of the garbage dump of Gehenna, rotting flesh, stench, constant fire and worms that consume flesh. And he borrows this imagery to say, you guys, eternal punishment is no joke. It is better to cut off limbs in this life than to enter into that eternal punishment. Now, Jesus could have simply said, hey, you guys, eternal punishment, it's bad. Eternal punishment, it's bad. He could have just left it at that. But instead, surrounded by hundreds, perhaps thousands of families, he decided to use this unbelievably graphic language in order to communicate to them about the horrors of eternal punishment so that they would choose something else, so that they would choose him. Jesus wants to be clear in his imagery so that people are totally warned about perishing, totally and completely warned about perishing. Fire, darkness, Gehenna. These are the images that Jesus uses in order to teach us about what eternal punishment is like. Now, we may be tempted to think, wow, eternal punishment. This is a hard subject. I'm on board with everything about God. God is really exciting to me, but this one area of eternal punishment, I don't really like that. That really seems arbitrary. Well, what I want to take the last few minutes that we're going to spend here and do is show you that, in fact, eternal punishment isn't arbitrary. It flows directly out of the primary characteristics of our God. It flows out of God's holiness. Eternal punishment flows out of God's holiness. God's holiness is so very hard for us to understand because we are surrounded by sin. We live in a world in which everything is affected and impacted by sin, and we become desensitized to it. And so it is extremely difficult for us as unholy people, living in unholy surroundings, surrounded by unholy people, to understand the holiness of God and the offense that sin is to him. I have been doing a little bit of cooking over the course of this summer. And yes, my family takes their life into their hands every time they choose to eat something I have prepared. And one day I was making a, wheel, a meal that was just loaded, absolutely loaded with onions and garlic. I, I mean, I spent a long time chopping garlic and mincing onions and, uh, nope, reverse those. And in that process, had a whole bunch of garlic cooking with chicken on the stove. And over here I'm marinating onions and I've got fresh onions ready to go on what I'm making. And I... My kids walked in from outside and they're like, Dad, what are you doing in here? It smells so strong in here. And I said, what, what are you talking about? I couldn't smell any of it. I'd gone uh, what the ad calls call uh, nose blind at that point. I couldn't smell it because I'd just been sitting there in it, marinating in that odor. But my kids, when they walked in from the outside, oh boy, could they smell it. They said, what in the world is going on? And to some degree, that is like us with sin. We're in it. It's all around us. It's in everyone around us. And so we become so very used to it. And so it is difficult for us to understand how offensive sin is to a perfectly holy God. 
We see our little decisions that are motivated by selfishness, and we go, well, sure, we're going to be motivated by selfishness sometime. Everybody in this world's motivated by self-interest and selfishness at times. I mean, come on. What's the big deal? But in fact, to God, when we make decisions motivated by selfishness, it's a total and complete betrayal of his creation purpose for us. God made us to be in his image, totally and completely perfect in love as he is, loving in every decision that we make, constantly motivated by love. And that little bit of selfishness in our eyes is a total betrayal of God's creation purpose for us. We are dishonest and we tell what we call little lies or or cut a little corner here, cheat a little bit there. And we say, well, come on, everybody is doing that. I mean, we we almost have to to keep up. How can we not? And and it's so, we're so saturated by a society filled with that kind of sin and unholiness that we kind of become used to it. But in fact, it's a betrayal of God's purpose for us in his creation. He made us, the God who is truth, made us to be totally and completely people of truth and honesty in each and everything that we do. And it's a betrayal of his creation purpose when we act counter to that. God is holy and he will not and he cannot be around sin. So if sin is attached to us when we reach the judgment, we cannot be in his presence and in the presence of all that is good. Now he has said, you guys, I have sent my one and only son And if you will trust in him, if you will follow after him, I will remove every part of the stench and odor of sin from your life. I will completely and totally forgive you of all things. And they will be placed on Christ on the cross and you will be given his righteousness. You'll be given his holiness. Will you trust in him? Will you believe in him? But if we reject that offer, we cannot be in the presence of a holy God while sin is attached to us. Eternal punishment flows out of God's holiness. But friends, eternal punishment also flows out of God's justice. What does Romans 3.23 say? It says that all, that sounds like everyone, has sinned and has fallen short of the glory of God. God made us for a purpose, to reflect his image, to be totally loving, totally honest, totally joyful, totally peaceful. We were to reflect God to all of creation, but we have fallen short of that glorious purpose by choosing sin, by choosing selfishness. And Romans 6.23 says there is appropriate justice for that. The wages or appropriate justice for our sin is death or separation from God. And there can be no justice unless sin, unless crime is punished. There can be no justice to just say, eh, let's just forget it. Justice demands that there is punishment for sin, punishment for crime. Now one might say, well, wait a minute. Isn't eternal punishment too big a punishment for the sins that I've committed? Is, does, that, does that punishment really fit the crime in this situation? I think that when we say that, one, we probably betray the fact that we are again looking at sin through the lens of our unholiness rather than God's totally and complete holiness. Second, I'm not sure that we fully understand who it is we are offending with our sin. 
when we say that. Because, and this is so important, one of the things that determines how bad an act is, is the worth of the person or creature that it is committed against. Let me say that again. One of the things that determines how bad an act is, is the worth of a person or creature who it is committed against. So if I get mad at a mosquito and I slap that mosquito and it dies, that is a certain level of guilt. No guilt whatsoever. Which deserves a certain level of punishment. No punishment whatsoever, but instead accolades. But if I get mad at a dog and kill that dog, now all of a sudden, because we are dealing with a creature of greater worth, there is greater guilt involved in that action and greater punishment in my angry killing of that dog. And if I get angry and I kill a person, now my guilt is far greater and the punishment that I deserve is far greater because the greater worth of a person, the greater the guilt and punishment from sinning against them. And who is it that we ultimately sin against in all of our sin? We sin against an infinitely great and an infinitely worthy God. And so the appropriate guilt and punishment for our crimes against him is an infinite punishment. That is what is just. There is greater guilt and thus greater punishment the greater the person or being that we sin against. God is an infinite being, and so we deserve an infinite punishment for sinning against him. Ultimately, eternal punishment flows out of God's justice. And Jesus always describes that punishment as just when he is talking about it. One of the things that bothers us most when we think about eternal punishment is the idea that there will just be a one-size-fits-all punishment for everybody who doesn't know Jesus. That's troubling to us. You're telling me that Satan and my next-door neighbor are going to be punished equally throughout all of eternity? You're telling me that Hitler and Great Aunt Betty are going to be published, punished equally throughout all of eternity? That kind of bothers our sense of justice, doesn't it? And it probably should. Because when Jesus teaches us about eternal punishment, it is not a one-size-fits-all punishment but is instead based on the justice of God in how people handled the lives that they were given. Jesus says in Luke chapter 12, talking about those who will be punished for their sins, he says, and that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrust much, they will demand the more. This verse is very clear. There is a difference in eternal punishment based upon what we have been given in life and how we handle it. Eternal punishment will not be a one-size-fits-all scenario. Two chapters before this, Jesus says, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in what the Israelites thought of as terribly wicked cities of Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. It'll be what? 
more bearable in the judgment for these terribly wicked cities of Tyre and Sidon than it will be for you because God does not punish everyone equally. By the way, in three weeks when we look at uh, heaven and eternal life, we're going to see that everyone's experience within heaven is not the same either. It isn't a one-size-fits-all blessing of heaven, just like it isn't a one-size-fits-all punishment of hell. God punishes people with perfect justice as he sees people's thoughts, motives, and private actions. He will judge people justly, and people will receive punishment based upon God's justice. Eternal punishment flows out of God's holiness. It flows out of God's justice. And finally, eternal punishment flows out of God's love. The very reason that God has endowed people with an opportunity to make a choice to reject him and reject his way of salvation or to submit to him and live their lives in submission to him is because he is a God of love and love requires choice. There is no such thing as forced love. As a matter of fact, one theologian uh, named Norm Geisler says, forced love is not love, it's rape. God does not force anyone to love him because that is contrary to the very nature of love. But he allows us to choose whether we will reject him and reject his, his mode of salvation or whether we will accept him, whether we will submit to him and live our lives loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Those who choose to be separated from God will have that choice honored throughout all of eternity. Those who choose to reject Jesus and his salvation, who choose to reject a relationship in which they love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, will have that choice honored throughout all of eternity. C.S. Lewis puts it this way, On the day of judgment, there will be two kinds of people in the world. One, those who have said to the Lord, thy will be done. And two, those to whom the Lord says, thy will be done. You want to live for self and not have a relationship with me? God allows them that eternal separation from him and all that is good forever. They enter into the eternity that they have chosen, rejecting Jesus, rejecting his salvation, and rejecting relationship with God. And that choice exists because God is a God of love. He does not force. He allows people that choice to submit to him or to reject him. Eternal punishment flows out of God's love. Of course, it is that same love that led God to send his one and only son so that he would go to the cross in our place, taking the guilt for our sin, taking the punishment for our sin so that we might be saved from all of the eternal punishment that we have talked about today and instead live with God forever in eternal life. It is love that has compelled God to send his son to take upon the punishment that I rightly deserved so that justice could be served and ultimately at the same time I could be declared free from sin, free from punishment. 
When we bring the message to people, we don't just bring people the message that they're drowning in sin. We also bring them the message that through Jesus, God has provided a life preserver. We don't just bring people the message that the plane is crashing because of sin. We bring people the message that God has, through Jesus, provided a parachute. We don't just bring people the message that they are sick with the sin, with the, with the illness of sin. We also bring people the message that through Jesus, God has provided a cure for that eternal illness of sin so that we can be people who live in health. We cannot ignore the scripture's warnings about drowning, crashing, and being sick with sin. But as we present the message of Jesus, we present these things so that we can talk about the life preserver, the parachute, the cure that God has provided so that we no longer have to live in our sins and live under the judgment of punishment that comes with those sins. Have you submitted your life to Jesus? Jesus wants to ultimately bring forgiveness into your life through what he has done on the cross, but we must submit ourselves in faith to him. Have you done that? If you've got questions about what that means to believe in him and trust in him, I want to encourage you to use the card that's on your section of chairs and let us know. We would love to talk to you about that. Believer, as we talk about eternal punishment and some of those things that we don't really want to talk about, doesn't it give you a greater sense of the blessing that God has given to you in saving you? Isn't there greater thanksgiving because we recognize all that God has saved us from in the person of Jesus Christ? And don't we praise him all the more, all the louder, all the more thoroughly with our life because we recognize what God has done on our behalf. We want to do that now. We want to praise him with all that we have because of what he has done in order to save us from this eternal punishment. Father, as we come before you, we recognize our sins the depth of our sins before you. We also recognize the unbelievable mercy and grace that you have shown to us. You are so very good, so very gracious, and so very loving. Jesus, we thank you for being our substitute, for taking the guilt of our sins and the punishment for our sins so that we might be set free and live in eternal life. And Lord, now we celebrate that as we praise you more throughout the rest of this day. In Jesus' name, amen.